I'm glad to be back again. Had a nice afternoon, a wonderful uh, time with the family this afternoon. I'm really grateful for that. And I just want to say thank you to those of you who organized this missions conference. It's, it's really, really well done. So let's give them a hand. You know. Of course, of course that was a faith-based statement. We don't know how things are going to go the rest of the week, but boy, I'm really impressed with the organization and, and uh, everybody uh, working together on this. It's just been a great experience to be a part of, and so I'm glad to be here. You know, um, this morning we introduced some new terminology, and we're again focusing in on missions means me, finding your role in the mission of the church. Session two is biblical basis of the mission. So we're going to do a Bible study. This is something I'm a little more uh, used to doing, and we're going to take a look at two passages. But this morning we introduced this terminology that might have been new to some of you. And it's always a challenge to introduce new terms, new visions uh, to people that perhaps have been speaking the same way for a long time, calling things by the same kind of thing. kind of reminds me of the story of a pastor of a church. He was a young guy. He'd come in. And he believed that God was calling the church to a new vision of what to be and what to do and what to be involved in. So at the elders meeting, he presented the new vision with energy and conviction and passion. you know. And when he finished and sat down, the senior elder got up and called for a vote. Twelve elders said no. no only one voted positive was the pastor. So the elder said, well, pastor, looks like you'll have to think again. And uh, would you like to close the meeting in prayer? So the pastor stood up, raised his hands to heaven and prayed, Lord, will you not show these people that this is not my vision, but it's your vision? And just at that moment, the clouds darkened, the thunder rolled, and a streak of lightning burst through the window and struck the table that they were sitting at, and they threw the pastor and all the elders to the ground. Wow, you know. So what happened? Well, the elders got up, after a moment's silence, they dusted themselves off and the senior elder spoke again. Well, that's 12 votes to two. <laughs> oh yeah, I get it now. Okay. <laughs> All right, well, hopefully that's not how... Uh, is it AUC? Is that the, 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 the acronym here? AUC. Hopefully that's not how the meetings go. <laughs> So this morning we explored the, the message of the mission and looked at some of that new terminology like we said, but what we're going to do this evening is take a look at two key passages that I believe best define the mission of the church. Remember, I'm using the term mission here in the sense of the overall purpose and calling of the church. In other words, what is the church here for? Now, we're going to tie this into our role in missions. Remember that distinction between mission and missions, you know. And we're going to talk about that next week. But um, I've always felt that the marching orders for the church are best understood in a couple of passages. And this is nothing new. You're going to say, oh yeah, he's going to go to Matthew 28. Yep. We're going to go right to Matthew 28, and we're also going to go to Acts chapter 1. And uh, I hope to bring out maybe a couple of things that maybe you haven't heard before. Um, they're obviously the key 
uh, passages that have to do with the mission of the church, and uh, I want to take a look at it this evening. And so we'll start off uh, by looking at the passage that's often called the Great Commission, Matthew 28. And let's just read it together. Uh, If you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. Uh, We're going to camp out a little bit here, and then we'll camp out in Acts a bit and might look at a couple of other verses here and there, but that's kind of where we'll stay. So if you want to keep your finger in your Bible, and uh, but let's read it together. Then Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, and this, of course, is after his resurrection, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I hear somebody memorized it. That's good. That's good. So what we're going to do is we're going to sort of uh, delve into this and take it apart piece by piece and, and take a look at it and see what kind of things we can learn from it this evening. And this is, uh, I'm even going to, you know, I'm going to do something dangerous here tonight. Ooh. Ooh. Did I get your attention there? Dangerous. We're going to talk about a little Greek. Oh, okay. Yeah. I saw a Greek flag here somewhere, I think, right? blue and white. Anyway, so we're going to talk about a little Greek tonight because it comes really into play here. But first of all, let's take a look at this first statement here of Jesus because he's talking about all authority has been given to him. And as I began to study this, I realized that there is an incredible connection here, and the commentators all point this out, between this passage and one of my favorite passages in all of the Old Testament. So if you want to turn there, that's fine. I'll bring it up here on the screen as well. Um, And this is Daniel chapter 7. This is the vision that Daniel has of the Son of Man who comes in the clouds. And it's a fabulous messianic prophecy of the divinity of the, the Messiah and what happens. So let's listen to what it says here. It says, I kept looking in the night visions. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Oh, man, I love that passage, don't you? I hear any amens? Yeah, it's okay. You know, it's all right, you know. I do a little better than that, okay? Do you like that passage? Okay, that's good, that's good. I learned that technique from my old drill instructor. I can't hear you. Yes, drill sergeant! You know, so. Creates enthusiasm. But let's take a look at this for a second. It's amazing. Did you know that in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the same verbs here, when it says, and, and to him was given dominion and kingdom, that's the same word for authority. 
And notice, he's given the authority. All authority is given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus says, and it's focused towards all of the nations. See that? It's a fantastic thing. And, and you know, you see, really, the Trinity here. Because there's a distinction between the Son of Man who's given the eternal kingdom and the Ancient of Days. Right? It's a tremendous prophecy of the divinity of Christ, the Trinity, and also the giving of authority for the kingdom to the Son. That all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve Him. That's really fantastic. Now, when we think about going back to uh, our passage in Matthew 28, when we think of authority, in what sense do we think about authority and what is Jesus talking about here? And so I, I thought I put some thought into this and I came up with two, two senses or two ways we could possibly take this here. First, it would be that the authority that is given to Jesus is the authority has to commission His followers to carry the Gospel to the nations and make disciples. Right? Jesus is the King. He's been given the dominion. He's been given the right to send His followers out and give them that authority to proclaim that message to the world. You know, And that, that works, right? You know? Um, secondly, another way you could take it is that authority here can be seen as a message of comfort for Jesus' followers. You see, we see it in the sense that because Jesus has been given all authority in heaven and earth, we have the confidence that Jesus is in control. Okay? Um, you know, and so when you, when you have that conversation with every man, you know, you can have the confidence that Christ has all authority, and that He can empower us to accomplish the task that He's given us to do. I like the comment by Craig Bloomberg, one of my favorite commentators in the book of Matthew. He says the following, he says, because of this authority, Jesus has the right to issue His followers their marching orders. But He also has the ability to help them carry out those orders. So Jesus, you know, He's the king. He's the boss. He's the jefe. And He has the authority to tell us what to do, but He also has the power to do and to, to create what we have going. So um, we start off by Jesus saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Okay? So we move on from there to the next section here. Go. What do we mean by go? One of the key questions here in this passage is how are we to translate and understand the word go? I had a conversation with a gentleman who was functioning as my translator last week, and we were talking about this, and he had been taught that uh, this was a bad translation, that in reality it should be translated something like as you are going or while you are going, make disciples. Okay? Uh, but I was thinking about this, and I knew why he was saying that, because 
It's a Greek participle here. Oh, Martha. He's going to start talking that crazy language. Greek participles. Or maybe you actually studied Greek and Greek participles were the bane of your existence. Um, I know many students. I used to teach beginning Greek for many years. And uh, participles were very difficult for students to get a handle on. Amen? (laughs) So, but think of a participle. A participle is a verbal noun. And almost always it is subordinate to the main verb in a paragraph or a sentence. Okay? So think of it that way. And the structure of Matthew uh, 28, verse 19, I believe it's 19, is that you have the main verb in the sentence. And the main verb is what we call an imperative. And an imperative is a special form in the Greek language. It's not necessarily made by context. It is a particular form and Greek changes the endings and so forth and uh, to tell you what kind of speech it is and stuff like that. It's very precise in that regard. And the imperative is the, is the mode of command. So it's, there's only one verb in the sentence here and, there, and it's a command or an imperative and it's make disciples. That's the command here in the verse. And then there are three participles, three verbal nouns, and these are, uh, if you want to think of a really simplistic way of translating them, I used to call them the ing words. Ing words, because you could make sense of them just, just by putting ing on the end of them. So, going, uh, baptizing, teaching. See, you put ing on the end of it, and it gives that participial sense. You're, the English teachers out there are probably, oh, amen, amen, amen. Okay. So, the question here is, is this word for go here, is this a subordinate participle to the main idea, the main command of the passage, which is make disciples? If so it sometimes would be rendered something like while you are going or in your going. Or if you wanted to put a little bit more of an application on it, you'd say in the course of your life, wherever you find yourself, make disciples. Okay, And so there are a lot of people that think that that's the way it should be translated here. But um, I'm not one of them. A couple reasons got me going on this, and I hadn't really looked at this that intensively, but I began, one of my favorite things to do, and this is a great tip for you Bible students out there. Um, if you, if you're wondering how to interpret a section of the Bible, and it's really easy right now, because you see this? This is a phone. Right. <laughs> of course. <laughs> You think we're stupid? No, no. But um, there's a free Bible app. You probably most of you have it, right? It's a wonderful app, and for free on my phone, I can have about 75 English translations of the Bible on my phone, 
And there's also another like 30 or 40 Spanish translations and all different kinds of languages. So I use this all the time. And what you can do is you can look up all these different translations and see how are they translating this? Because you got to figure somebody knew something that was behind putting the translation together, right? So that's a good way to find out. And if they all say more or less the same thing, then you can probably be pretty sure that there's not a lot of controversy over how to translate something. And what you'll find out is that in spite of the fact that the word go here is a participle and not not an imperative verb, virtually every English translation translates it as an imperative. Go and make disciples. Right? So I got to thinking, there's got to be a reason for this. And so I started digging into the commentaries and doing some research on it. And it turns out that there is an advanced part of Greek grammar that talks about a coordinating participle with a imperative verb. And Matthew actually uh, uses this particular construction several times in the, his gospel. Let me get, I'm going to give you one example, although you know, this, if you really want to delve into this, I can give you some references for some commentaries, and they'll, they go look at every single one of them. Okay, but the one we'll look at here is in Matthew chapter 2.8. Now, I pick this one because it's so obvious that you have to take it this way. This is uh, Matthew 2.8 is where the Magi come to Herod looking for Jesus, right? It's in the, in the uh, uh, Nativity narratives, and it's in verse 8. And King Herod gives instructions to the Magi, right? And he sent them to Bethlehem. So clearly here, he's, you know, sending them to Bethlehem. And then look what it says. And he says to them, go and search diligently for the child. Same construction. Say, go is a participle. But the main verb there and the imperative is search for the child. But it's very clear from the context there that that Herod is sending them to go and search for the child. So there's very good reason to believe that the English translations have this correct. So that when we talk about going, we're not saying, oh, you know, while you're you know, moseying along in your life, make it your goal to, to make disciples. And I, I would say that's a good thing, right? But what we're focusing in on here is a sense of intentionality, a sense of purpose here. Go and make disciples. And I believe that's very important here because we have to take the initiative if we're going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And of course, that's what missions is all about at its core, right? It's about trying to fulfill this commission of Christ to take the gospel to the world. Now, um, having said all of that, okay, we have to think about the main verb in the sentence. The main point here is not to go, right? The main point 
is to make disciples. All right? To make disciples. And um, it doesn't say here, interestingly, make converts. It doesn't say produce decisions. Right? So making a disciple is a long-term process. It's not a once... I mean, it may begin with a once-for-all moment and usually does. But it's something that takes time. And what's interesting here is that this text gives us two ways that we're to go about doing that. And these are, again, these are these coordinating participles. And here, I think they are subordinate to the main verb. The main verb is make disciples. Well, how do I make disciples? Well, I make them by baptizing and teaching. Baptizing and teaching. And baptizing is the initiatory right into the Christian fellowship, into the Christian church, right? And so this speaks of conversion to Christ. This speaks of evangelism. This speaks of speaking the gospel to people, bringing them into the church, and getting them baptized. But that's just the beginning thing. We have to teach them. And as the text says, teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. So there's a discipleship part to this. And so this also is a part of the mission. Sometimes I think we, we, we think of evangelism as just getting the mission out, but it really has to be something that's coordinated with the ministry of discipleship. And this is where the power of the Word of God comes into play here. Again, Bloomberg has a great quote here. It says, The verb, make disciples, also commands a kind of evangelism that does not stop after someone makes a profession of faith The truly subordinate participles in verse 19 explain what making disciples involves, baptizing them and teaching them in obedience of all of Jesus' commandments. The first of these will be a once-for-all decisive initiation to the Christian community. The second proves a perennially incomplete lifelong task. So it's clear as we examine this passage that making disciples is not just a proclamation of the gospel, and asking for a show of hands, or asking someone to come forward, that's only the beginning. And it needs to be followed up with baptism and ongoing training in the Scriptures. There's a tendency sometimes, I think, in in evangelistic circles and mission circles and churches to count hands raised, or however, you know, people who come forward, or people who get counseling and all of that, you know, and really the, the, the real measure, I think, of commitment to Christ comes when somebody follows up in baptism and gets involved in discipleship. Starts, you know, studying the Word, starts attending uh, Bible studies and things like that. That's when I think you can really say, hey, this person looks to be a genuine convert to Christ. So, um, that's a very quick run through uh, Matthew 28 and um, the key things there. Uh, the last verse here in 20 
says something profound. It says, Jesus is always with us as we seek to be obedient to the mission. Let's read that last part here once again. You know, let me just get there real quick. Sorry. Teaching them to observe all that I commanded you, verse 20, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. See, what a comforting thought this is, right? Jesus promises to be with us as we are involved in the process of making disciples. You know, we do things oftentimes where if we really were honest with ourselves, we'd be asking ourselves, should I be doing this? Right? And I know you never do that. But I do sometimes, right? You know? Um, and, <laughs> but, you know, we know that when we're making disciples, we're doing what Jesus wants us to do. See? And He will be with us in that. He'll be with us. Okay. Acts 1, 6 through 8. So let's turn in our Bibles there. I'm going to take a look at this one. In the Matthew passage, we saw that it's Jesus' authority that gave us our commission to take the Gospels to the nation. We're going to see something a little bit different here in Acts 2. And I've given a little bit of a context here. This is uh, Jesus has just spent 40 days with His disciples. At the end of that 40-day period, He has this little conversation with them. And at the end of this conversation, He ascends up into heaven right before their very eyes. So these are the last words, last recorded words of Jesus to His followers that we have. Okay? So uh, He had just been, the text tells us, talking to them 40 days about the kingdom of God. And so when they came together, verse 6 says, they were asking Him, Lord, is it at this time You're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, I used to harp on this all the time. And I can't resist the temptation to do it now. So I'm going to. But this to me is one of the strongest verses for premillennialism in the Bible. You say, what? Really? Well, let me show you why. He'd been talking to them for 40 days about the kingdom of God. Now, I believe that we use the, kingdom, the term kingdom of God in a couple different ways. You know, we, we, we speak of the kingdom of God in the sense of a spiritual kingdom, and we preach the message of the kingdom of God, and that means that we bring people into the kingdom of God, and that means that people come to faith, they come under the lordship of Jesus Christ, Jesus becomes their king, and so in that sense, they enter into the kingdom of God. So it's a, what, what theologians call an already and yet and a not yet. You ever hear that expression before? An already but a not yet. So we're already experiencing the kingdom because we're believers in Jesus Christ and we're a part of that heavenly kingdom. Colossians says that we have been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of His dear Son. So we already are members of the kingdom of God. But there's a not yet. And the not yet is the coming 
fruition, fulfillment of the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. And Jesus has just been talking to his disciples for 40 days about this subject. And, and what do they say? They say, hey, you going to do it now, Jesus? You going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And notice what Jesus says to them. Guys, haven't you been listening to me? For 40 days I've been telling you it's only a spiritual kingdom. It's not going to be a real kingdom in Israel. I sound like an amillennialist. Sorry. I love amillennialists. I love them. They're okay. Don't agree with them, but, you know, I did my doctoral work at Westminster Seminary, so, you know. But in any event, and notice what Jesus says, though, really. He says, it's not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by His own authority. He says, look, this isn't what I want you to be concerned about right now. You see, you know, God knows when He's going to restore the kingdom of Israel. I've got a different job for you guys. I've got something else for you to do. And He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. It's not for you to know times or epochs when the Father's fixed by His own authority, but you will receive power, you see, after the Spirit comes upon you. So it's in the Matthew passage we see that Jesus' authority gave us a commission to take the Gospel to the nations. Here in Acts 2, we see that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that gives us the ability to be witnesses of the good news of Jesus Christ. And that again, the theme is that this goes even to the remotest parts of the earth. Now, I'm excited that I believe you've been... Are you done going through the book of Acts? You're still working your way through it. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I had the privilege of teaching through the book of Acts almost every spring semester for almost 15 years. And uh, I just grew to love it. And um, we got to spend quite a bit of time in it because we had a three-hour course and two hours of it were the book of Acts. And that was a, a real luxury. So we got to really kind of look at it in depth. And one of the things that stand out about the book of Acts very clearly as you study it is that Acts 1.8 is not only Jesus' commission to His disciples but it's also the progression, the plan, and the outline of the whole book. All right? The story begins with the followers of Jesus in Jerusalem. It spreads through the surrounding region. Look at what it says. You'll be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. It's an outgoing expansion from the center of Jerusalem into the surrounding uh, country and even to the neighboring country of Samaria, but then it goes to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what happens in the book. The story begins with Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, Jerusalem, spreads to the surrounding region, and then ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome. And Rome is the center of the Gentile world at that point in time. So that's not an accident. That's God's saying, this is where, you know, the the witness is going to start here in Jerusalem and it's going to move out and it's then going to go to the ends of the earth. 
Another key transition we see in the book of Acts is the beginning of all the followers of Christ are Jews. Right? All of His disciples are Jews. All the people who get saved on the day of Pentecost, they're all Jews. Those who, The 5,000 are saved a few days later at the next sermon, they're all Jews. But things change in the book. And so the book starts in Jerusalem and slowly, especially through the ministry of the Apostle Paul and Peter and Cornelius and all these other events, the next thing we know, it's the Gentile world that is coming to Christ in droves. And the Gospel ends up in Rome with kind of an ominous note there. The very end of the book, and I don't want to steal your thunder, the end of the book, but uh, they'll forget it anyway by the time you get there, right? So, you know, right, you know, line upon line, precept upon precept, you know, you got to be told a few times to have it get sink in. But um, at the end of the book, Paul's under house arrest and leaders of the Jewish synagogues come and they listen to him and he presents Christ to them and they, and they, they turn it away. And it's sort of an ominous note there at the end of the book that all throughout the book of Acts, Paul goes to the Jew first, goes to the synagogue first, presents Christ, and you have a replay almost over and over again. A minority, a remnant of the Jews come to faith in Christ the Messiah, but the rest reject Him. And then the Gospel goes to the Gentiles and they accept it with open hearts and open, open minds. So that's a key transition there. And another thing about the end of the book of Acts that I love is that Paul is is in Rome. He's under house arrest. And the story just ends. It ends with the rejection of the Jewish synagogue leaders in the book. And Luke says Paul was uh, able to share the Gospel unhindered in Rome. And it it just ends. And you're like, "Whoa, whoa, 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 what's the rest of the story? Where does Paul go from there? What happens next? And there's a lot of theories on that, but I I think it just ends because the book's not done yet. There's even a movement called the Acts 29 movement, right? There is no Acts 29. Like, where where is it? I can't find it. Right? It's like first Hezekiah. We're Acts twenty nine. You know, I like that I like that image. You know, because the job's not done. There are still nations and peoples and folks who've never heard the gospel. There's still people out there who are waiting to be made disciples who haven't had the witness of Christ given to them. Yeah. And so the, do- the job's not done. We've still got work to do. And God's still working to take the Gospel to every tribe and tongue and nation in the world. So the work's not complete yet. Okay. Well, is this commission for the apostles only? I don't think so. Not at all. There's no way they could have fulfilled all the implications of what Jesus is commanding here. It's up to the church. 
It's up to the followers of Christ, His disciples, to continue this mission, to try to fulfill this vision of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, sharing it with everyone, and giving everyone an opportunity to come to faith in Christ. Well, how does this relate to the theme of our missions conference? Missions means me. I believe that this command to go and make disciples is for all of us. It's the mission of the church. All that we do, all that we're involved in, should be with the goal to make disciples. Some will be teachers. Some will be evangelists. Some will be missionaries who go and take that message to places where it's never been taken before. Right? But it's the mission of the church. We all need to go. Whether it's to go across the street or to the guy sitting next to you on the airplane. I I have a lot of experience with that. I know exactly how you feel. I get on that airplane and and I just want to veg out. You know, and sometimes I'm really happy when the guy next to me puts on the headphones and goes to sleep because I think I don't have to, oh, I don't have to talk to him. <laughs> so I really re- resonated with your with your dilemma there. And uh yeah, sometimes it just means we have to go. Right, reach out to someone, step out of your comfort comfort zone a little bit, or maybe it means going to a foreign land, like many of you have, and I greatly admire the people that do that and give up so many things sometimes to to be over and and be a part of the Great Commission. I know I'm not saying anything new here. It's words that I know we've all heard. Uh, I know I'm not presenting anything profound to you, but I think it's good for us to remind ourselves occasionally that this is our mission. This is what we're all about. We're not about kingdom building here, our own kingdoms, our own, you know, this isn't about uh, getting a bigger sanctuary. It's not about, um, you know, creating the attendance levels and the budget of the church. I mean, if those are byproducts, great, you know. It's about making disciples. And if you, need a big, if you need a bigger building to make more disciples, great. But the bigger building, the bigger budget, that's not the goal. The goal is to make disciples. That's what we're here for. That's the mission of the church. That's what the Bible tells us. And we need to be reminded of it. So thank you for the opportunity. Uh, next Sunday morning, the title of the message is going to be The Toolbox. You say, what is that? Well, you'll have to come and find out. Okay? And we're also going to have a mystery, famous missionary we're going to talk about next week. Okay? So, till then, I'll see some of you uh, later on this week for some of the events. So, thank you.